Well, later on, we'll be in Exodus 24, but for the moment, turn with me to John chapter 3. John chapter 3, but just to give the background to Exodus 24, hopefully you've been here fairly consistently on Sunday nights. We're going through large chunks of Scripture, so it would be hard for you to keep up. Israel has been given the general stipulations of God's covenant with them. That's the Ten Commandments, the, the general commands. The people gave an initial agreement that anything God commanded them, they would do. That agreement is recorded in Exodus 19, verse 8. All the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. Then the Lord gave them their first set, the first of many to come, but their first set of day-to-day instructions. The outworking, the manifestations of those Ten Commandments, how they're to live differently than their neighboring nations and show what a set-apart nation who is holy and set-apart and different unto God what that nation looks like. He gave them this book of the covenant, as we called it, which is found in Exodus 20, beginning of verse 22, going through the end of chapter 23. And it's identified in chapter 24 as the book of the covenant. And now the people are about to have an opportunity once again to agree to the specific stipulations in Exodus chapter 24. But before we get to Exodus 24, I want to take a little journey through your salvation through your meeting with Christ, your new covenant relationship with God through the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Because as a Christian, you are in covenant relationship with God. You are in an agreement with God. This is called the new covenant. It's a covenant promised to Israel in which Gentiles now also receive through Christ. We receive the benefits, although all of the new covenant hasn't been fulfilled yet. That'll be fulfilled when Israel is restored in a future time. And so we have to remember that in the context of the whole Pentateuch, the whole Torah, the people of Israel exist to be a vehicle. They're a vehicle through which God will restore sinlessness to the earth so that mankind can reign alongside him in a perfect creation. That was the central directive that we identified all the way back in Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 28. So I want to walk through the process of your salvation first, and you'll see why in a few minutes. I want to highlight four important elements to your salvation journey. This isn't a comprehensive list, but it is inclusive. And what I mean by that is that it takes you from the beginning to the very end of your salvation journey. So let's review the gospel together. And I like to think of this as just visiting some old friends. Because all the friends we're going to visit here in the New Testament are familiar to us and should warm our hearts as we go through the gospel The four elements of your salvation journey. The first element of your salvation journey we'll call covenant agreement. Covenant agreement. Well, immediately we have a problem. You were incapable of entering into a covenant agreement with God. You didn't have the ability to do that. Romans 3, beginning in verse 10, says, None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Ephesians 2, verse 1, you're very familiar with this. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. And so what were you to do? There was nothing you could do, and you didn't want to do anything anyway. But this tremendous little phrase in Ephesians 2, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. How did he do this? 
How did he soften your heart to look upon the Lord Jesus Christ and say, I need a savior. I need forgiveness. I need to worship him as God. How did he do this? Well, this brings us to John chapter 3. We'll visit an old friend here named Nicodemus. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. You had to be born again. This is a passive verb. It's something that God did, not something that you went after. You, you didn't come forward at church and say, I want to be born again. You didn't know you needed to be born again before you were. God did that work. It's what we call regeneration. It's called regeneration elsewhere in the New Testament. Titus 3, verse 5, He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. And so now, enlivened by the Spirit of God, able to see your own sin for what it was, now able to see your Savior for who He is, you entered into a covenant agreement. When Jesus was on earth and beginning His ministry, He urged the lost to enter into covenant agreement with God for salvation from sin. He said in Matthew four seventeen, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent is that initial step of coming to God by faith. To say, yes, I will make covenant agreement with you. He offered so clearly in Matthew 11, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. But what does a covenant agreement look like for the, for the new covenant believer? What did that actually entail? What, what was a picture of it? Well, let's look at some old friends here. Turn to the next chapter, John chapter 4. <clears throat> In this classic meeting between Jesus and the Samaritan woman at the well, Jesus exposed her sin to her. They're in a very innocent little conversation about water and living water and so forth. And all of a sudden, in verse 16 of chapter 4, Jesus gets her. Jesus said to her, go, call your husband and come here. Trick question. Verse 17, the woman answered, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands and the one you now have is not your husband. What you've said is true. So she got a pretty good clue that Jesus was different than other people she had talked to. And in fact, she says so in verse 19, the woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Jesus continued teaching her. She continued inquiring of him. And look down at verse 25. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. And when he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. He had invited her to drink of the living water of himself, the living water of eternal life. 
in Christ, and she did. She entered into covenant agreement, and she urged others to do so as well. Look at verse 39. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with him, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you have said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. They have made covenant agreement. Turn to John chapter 6. We'll have a little bit of a tour this evening. John chapter 6, Jesus had fed the 5,000 men. They came back the next day for breakfast. But he refused them. He told them they didn't need bread to eat. They needed the bread of life, who is Christ. He told them that they must be unified and made part of Christ. And he said so in shocking and stark terms in chapter 6, near the end of the chapter, verse 53, he shocks them. So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. He's saying, you must be so completely identified with me, it's as if you have taken me into yourself. And the people started grumbling. Verse 30, they said, this is too hard. We, we don't understand. We don't want this. Jesus was telling them that if they were to be saved, they had to completely identify with him and him alone. And most of them said, no, I won't. Verse 66 After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. And so most of the thousands who had witnessed his miracle of feeding tens of thousands of people, in one of the most important questions in all of the Bible, now Jesus asks in verse 67, Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? We have a fine moment from the Apostle Peter. Simon Peter answered, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And in fact, on a different occasion, Peter declared to Jesus, see, we have left everything to follow you. Covenant agreement says that you place yourself utterly and completely and humbly under the lordship of Christ. You do everything he said. You give up everything. You agree to be in covenant with him, with him as Lord. Turn back to the gospel of Luke. Chapter 19, another old friend, a smaller friend, Zacchaeus. This hated chief tax collector, Zacchaeus of Jericho, Luke 19, verse 1. He's a Jew who had turned on his own people to work for Rome, to cheat the Jews by charging far above the normal tax rate and to make himself wealthy. God had been preparing his heart. He was a small man in stature, so he had to climb the sycamore tree to see Jesus as he was coming. In Luke 19, verse 5, And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. 
But to have Jesus into his home, to have fellowship with him, to have unity with him, to have oneness with him, to have a relationship with him, Zacchaeus had to make covenant agreement with Christ. He had to come into covenant with Christ and in an official manner, standing with all of his smallness, in an official, humble capacity before God in the flesh. Zacchaeus said in verse 8, Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. What is that? That's repentance. He's made covenant agreement. I will be, I will be your servant. You will be my Lord. And Jesus said in verse 9, Today salvation has come to this house. He entered into covenant agreement. Turn to Acts chapter 9. Another friend. Acts chapter 9, we see Saul, the proud Pharisee and the chief persecutor of the new Christian church on his way to arrest Christians. And he's confronted by the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And Saul falls to the ground, confronted by the God of the universe, though he doesn't know who this is yet. Acts chapter 9, verse 4, And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what to do. And so Jesus issued a call to Saul to rise, to enter the city and await instructions. What did Saul do? He's blinded by God at this moment. He's led by others into the city. Verse 9, and for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Now, why do you think Paul was fasting? Why was he in prayer? Why was he not even drinking water, humbled, humiliated. This man who was a Bible scholar, a preeminent scholar of his day, who thought he knew the God of the Bible had been persecuting the Son of God. And here he is, humbled to the dust, and he's now entering into covenant agreement with God through Christ. And after three days, Saul made his covenant agreement official. In verse 18, And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose and he made the covenant agreement official and he was baptized. Entering into covenant agreement with God, it consisted of you who is small, wretched, worthless, according to Romans 3, hopeless, receiving the gracious offer of salvation by God through Christ. You enter as the one who's helpless, who's humiliated in your own sin, eager to receive the grace and the covenant blessings of God. That's how you started your journey with covenant agreement. There's a second element of your salvation journey we'll call covenant blood. Covenant blood. Turn with me to Romans chapter 3, just a few pages over. Romans chapter 3. Your sin didn't just magically disappear. God is not Santa Claus to say, oh, I'll just transfer you from the naughty list to the nice list. Sins don't just get ignored by a holy God. Every lie that you told is still out there. Every murderous thought that you had still exists. Every wicked intention still haunts you. Every evil word still rings out. Sin has a consequence, and that consequence is death. The wrath of God must be propitiated. It must be satisfied. And you were utterly incapable of satisfying God's wrath against your own sin. Why? You weren't a worthy sacrifice even for yourself. Romans 3, verse 23. Another old friend. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. 
And so, what did God do? Verse 24, And you are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance, He had passed over former sins. Why is the wages of sin death? James 2 verse 10 says that if you have violated one of God's laws, you are guilty of all of them. What do you do with murderers? You kill them. That's what you deserve. What do you do with somebody who has murdered 10,000 times over in their mind? Somebody who has lied 10,000 times over in their mind? Somebody who has pushed God away 10,000 times over in their mind? You send them to what the Bible calls the second death, the eternal death, the lake of fire. That's why the lake of fire is eternal because you can't ever make your sin go away. The murderous thought you had will always exist and you will always pay for it. Except in Christ, that wrath is satisfied for us. We're told in Ephesians 1 verse 7, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Ephesians 2.13, now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And Romans, I'm sorry, Hebrews 9 verse 12 reminds us that Jesus, quote, entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing, how long is your redemption? An eternal redemption, that the payment is made forever. This is the heart of the gospel Hebrews 9.22 says, Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Sin must be dealt with. Turn with me to 1 Peter, a little bit farther along in the New Testament. And while you're finding 1 Peter, let me remind you of something important that the Lord Jesus said when he was giving to his disciples the remembrance of the Lord's Supper, of communion, the Lord's table. The Lord said in Luke 22.20, And likewise, the cup, after they had eaten, he took the cup after they had eaten, saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. He's indicating that not only is the blood of Christ the means by which salvation is secured, but his blood is also an inauguration. It is the initiation of the new covenant. The cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Now, why is this important? In the ancient Near East, not just in Israel, but in in many, many cultures, this was something that was very, very common. A contract, a covenant was secured in blood. Sacrifices were made and blood was sprinkled on both parties. And the idea was whoever breaks this covenant shall be like this animal that's sliced in half here. It was binding. It was the ultimate signature. You've heard the phrase, he signed in blood. That's what it's about. Look with me at 1 Peter chapter 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who were elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ. And look at this. For sprinkling with his blood. What is this? What is this sprinkling with his blood? Yes, this is certainly a reference to the sacrifice that Jesus made for your sins. But why sprinkling? 
Well, this represents a watershed moment. This represents the moment in which both parties of a covenant officially enter into friendship, into unity, into oneness. We sing hymns about being washed in the blood, but this is talking about being sprinkled by the blood. This is the covenant moment. This is the signature moment. Being sprinkled with the blood of Christ means he's done his part. He has made sacrifice for sins. And us being sprinkled means we agree to covenant loyalty. Look at the connection. For obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, I agree to obey. I agree to come under the lordship of Christ. Being sprinkled with the blood of Christ means you've been converted. It means you've turned away from the world and turned to Christ. One scholar aptly explains, the blood of the covenant signifies that forgiveness and cleansing the people needed to stand in right relation with God. We see then that entrance into the covenant has two dimensions, the obedient response to the gospel and the sprinkling of blood. So you entered into covenant agreement, which is inaugurated by covenant blood, And because God will never break his end of the agreement, which is that he will hold you unto himself to the end, because, as John said in 1 John 5, 13, these things I write to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. Because, as the Apostle Paul said in Romans chapter 8, that in all these things we're more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Because, as Peter said right here in 1 Peter 1, Beginning of verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Because of all of that, now we can get to the third element of your salvation journey that we'll call covenant homecoming. Covenant homecoming. Turn to Revelation chapter 4. We could just make two brief highlights into this covenant homecoming. First of all, you will see heaven. You will see heaven. It's not just that you're saved from hell and then to enter into some sort of neutral oblivion or soul sleep state, you're invited and you have a guaranteed ticket into the very house of God. Revelation chapter 4, I'm sorry, verse 11, or verses 1 through 11. We'll read the whole chapter. Revelation 4. After this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven, and the first voice, which I heard speaking to me like a trumpet, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the spirit and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were 24 thrones and seated on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. 
And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. Oh, what a what a scene. What do we see here? In verse 1, there's a, a door standing open in heaven. This is an official invitation to the Apostle John to take a peek. And the first voice that he heard, this is referring to Jesus Christ himself, told him, come up here. And it was a voice like a trumpet. Often in the, in the Bible, a trumpet indicates that new revelation is happening or the presence of God is here. And John is told, come up here, an invitation to see what is happening in heaven right at this moment in what we might call intermediate heaven. And he says, to see what must take place after this. Now, up until now in the book of Revelation, everything that John has seen and has been given is happening on earth in his present day. Revelation 2 and 3 speaks of churches in his present day. Now the scene switches to the future. Verses 2 and 3, he's in the spirit. Behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne, and he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. What's the first thing he saw? A throne. In fact, the throne dominates this chapter. We hear of a throne 14 times just in this chapter. God is the supreme ruler of the universe. The idea of the throne is spoken of in the New Testament 62 times. 45 of them are in Revelation. Can you tell where redemptive history is headed? And this throne stood in heaven. Literally in Greek, it set like a foundation. This is in contrast to the thrones of earth. What happened to the thrones of earth? They come and they go, don't they? They rise and they fall. The throne of God is permanent. It's fixed. And he gives this description of the throne room. Really, it's, it's a, a hopeless attempt to try to describe the indescribable. He says that he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian. Jasper would probably most likely be a diamond. We see that from Revelation 21. Carnelian is a blood red stone. And there is the appearance of a rainbow that was emerald but had one color. So it was a rainbow that looked like all the colors with one color that looked like one color that looked like all the colors. How do you describe the indescribable? Verse 4, around the thrones are 24 thrones. And so this emerald rainbow around the throne and 24 thrones around the throne. And on these thrones are elders. Who are these elders? Some feel they're the 12 Old Testament patriarchs and 12 apostles representing Old and New Testament. That, That preaches well, but there's nothing in the text to tell us that. Others feel that these are angelic beings, big angels, but angels are never said in Scripture to rule with God or be given thrones alongside God. There's only really one reasonable option left, that these 24 elders represent the whole of the redeemed church. 
And in fact, you see this exact same scene in Ezekiel chapter one in Ezekiel's day, only there's something missing, the thrones and the elders. Why? Because the church isn't there yet. Revelation 3, 21, the saints are invited to sit on the throne with him wearing their crowns of victory and reward. And now in here, chapter four, verse five, from the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals and thunder. And before the throne were seven burning torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. Well, you have flashes of lightning, thunder, peals of thunder. What's this remind us of as we've been going through Exodus? Reminds us of Mount Sinai, doesn't it? When Moses was receiving the law of God, these seven torches here, the abundance of light at God's throne, the seven spirits, this speaks of the fullness of the Spirit of God. In the Holy of Holies, In the ancient tabernacle and then temple, the inner sanctuary of the temple, there was a lampstand with seven lamps, basically the intensity of candles, but they burned representing the presence of God. Now there's no more candles. There's heavenly torches lit by the Spirit of God himself who is the illumining illumining fire. And there's a sea of glass like crystal. We want to be careful not to be overly symbolic on everything. Basically, that's describing the floor. This is quite a place. You make your floor out of crystal. There's clarity. There's the illumination of the glory of God and his surroundings, all given by the Spirit. And as if that's not enough, there's the angels and around the throne in the middle of verse 6 and on each side of the throne. Here's these four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. You have one like a lion, one like an ox, one like a man, one like an eagle. The four living creatures have six wings. They're full of eyes all around them. Day and night, they never cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and who is and who is to come. And whenever the living creatures gave glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, then these 24 elders would fall down and worship. Isaiah 6 pictures angelic beings around the throne, the seraphim, the burning ones. Seraphim are seem to, they seem to be primarily worshipers. That seems to be their job. Ezekiel in chapter 1 depicts creatures similar to these in Revelation 4. He calls them cherubim, cherubim, another class of angels. They're more like guardians. In Isaiah, we have six wings. In Ezekiel, they only have four wings. I wouldn't get too worried about that. I think John is trying to describe things that are indescribable here. So which are these? Well, there seems to be an overlap, but I think they're probably most similar to Ezekiel's vision John sees the four living creatures as having the similarity to a lion, an ox, a man, an eagle. Ezekiel sees them all uh, as having the four faces of that creature. It speaks really to the difficulty of human perception to describe that which is heavenly. What are these creatures? Well, it seems to be that these creatures are sort of like the the best hits of God's creation. Kind of like the highlights of the great things that he's done. The lion, the ox, the man, the eagle. These are the creatures that will speak at the opening of the four seals beginning in Revelation 6. And what are they doing? Day and night, they never cease to worship. They set a pretty high standard of worship for us, don't they? They worship in truth. They worship in truth. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And this is so important. The worship of these angels is emotional, but it is not emotion-based. It's truth-based. It's a rehearsal of the truth. It's saying the profound truths of God over and over again. 
When somebody says, well, I'm tired of singing this song over and over again. We, we sing this hymn all the time. Well, I tell that to the angels who have been saying this for tens of thousands of years. They proclaim God's holiness, that he's distinct, he's holy other, he's eternal. And these angels are giving God glory, honor, and thanks. In verse 9, now this is interesting. The concepts of giving God glory and honor appear all over the Bible, appear all over the, the Old Testament. But the concept of giving God thanks accelerates in the New Testament. There's a sense in which now there's more thankfulness. And on top of that, why would the angels be giving God thanks? They've always had everything they need. They've, they've never fallen into sin. Why are they giving him thanks? I believe the best answer is that they're giving him thanks because of the presence of the church. Speaking of angels, Hebrews 1.14 says, Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? They're giving God thanks for the 24 elders, for the church. And in this symbiotic, flawlessly performed act of worship, every time the angels cry out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come, then the saints of heaven respond. The 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne. They cast their crowns. Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. And this is your story. This is my story. By God's will, you were created. You exist because of Him. You were recreated in Christ because of Him. These saints have been resurrected. They've been raptured. They're experiencing praising God in their glorified bodies. This is the first taste of an eternity of living out God's purpose. And I hope you will read Revelation 4 and look forward to that scene because there will be a day when you see it and you don't just read about it. But in this covenant homecoming, not only do you see heaven, the second highlight of your covenant homecoming, you'll see God. You'll see God. When Isaiah stood before the glory of God, he cried out in Isaiah 6, verse 5, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. Why? For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. He believed that seeing God face to face meant instant death, and he would be right. But an angel came and purified him with a burning coal. You've been purified with the burning coal of the cross of Christ. And because of this, 1 John 3 verse 2 says, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. I, I can't even begin to grasp how to explain to you what it means to see God. Now this week, I, I, I hit a wall studying this. How do you explain to people what it means to see God? How do you understand the, the perfect satisfaction? How do you understand the yearning and the joy and the delight? How do you understand taking in a view of the glory of God that will never be old after a billion years? I don't know how to explain that. It's the ultimate soul satisfaction and joy and delight. It's, it's happiness, indescribable. It's the ultimate continued pleasure forever and ever and ever. 
Psalm 1611, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Which, by the way, implies something. It implies that we learn and grasp new things about God every day, forever and ever and ever. And if we truly believe that God is eternal, that he's infinite, that he has no end, that he has no bounds, you will learn more and more of God and yet never have made progress. I can't, I can't fathom that. This is what Jesus prayed for you in John seventeen twenty four. He prayed that you would come to heaven to see his glory, to see him as he really is. Oh, I think when we see Christ as he really is, we'll be tearing up all our Sunday school uh, coloring pages. Well, well, that was ridiculous. I mean, think about how you feel when you see the stars or a full moon or a sunrise or a sunset a glorious mountain range, all of those are just created things. That's just the signature of the creator. Imagine beholding the creator of all those things. That'll be on a magnitude that is infinitely higher. This was the hope which kept Job going in the midst of his terrible trials. Job 19.26, After my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh, here's his hope, I shall see God. That was his hope. What a great homecoming. So your salvation journey has these elements of covenant agreement, covenant blood, covenant homecoming. But your homecoming has to be marked. There has to be a a, a punctuation to it. There must be something to say, salvation is now complete. And so we'll call this element covenant celebration. Covenant celebration. And in the Bible, how does God enter into celebration to mark a victory or completion? With a meal. That's what we do in the church too because we're made in the image of God. Jesus gave a hint that some sort of celebration was coming when he instituted the Lord's table. The night that he was betrayed, he said mysteriously, Matthew 26, verse 29, I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. I can imagine the disciples looking at each other We're going to sit down at the table again in the kingdom and drink with our Lord. There will be a time and a place when we fellowship with Christ around a glorious celebration meal. Jesus used the idea of a celebration meal to refer to the coming kingdom. He said in Matthew 22, verse 2, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. Turn with me to Revelation 19. The consummation of the salvation plan of God is upon us now. God has redeemed a people to give to His Son. This people has been made righteous through the blood of His Son. And now an announcement rings out in heaven. Revelation 19 verse 6. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude. Like the roar of many waters. And like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out. Hallelujah for the Lord our God the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory for the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride, that's you, has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure for the righteous linen is the the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this. Blessed are those who were invited to the marriage supper of the lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Our intimate forever fellowship with Christ is celebrated 
The new covenant is now fulfilled. We are united with Christ, not by faith anymore, but by sight. First Thessalonians 4 says that where he is, we will always be. And by the way, even when we receive the Lord's table, there should be a sense of anticipation that the Lord's table on earth is just the precursor to the Lord's table in heaven, which I guarantee you will be fancier. That's your journey of salvation. Covenant agreement, covenant blood, covenant homecoming, covenant celebration. Now you can understand Exodus 24. Turn with me back to Exodus 24. And let's see how the old covenant God made with Israel foreshadows and hints at the new covenant that is to come. Israel and God are officially entering into covenant with one another. First, there must be covenant agreement. Exodus 24, verse 1. Then he said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and the seventy of the elders of Israel, and worship from afar. Moses alone shall come near to the Lord, but the others shall not come near, and the people shall not come up with him. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. And all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words that the Lord has spoken we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. To enter into this covenant blessing with God, they must come on God's terms. Nobody makes a deal with God. He makes the terms. The terms are total surrender. The terms are obedience to his law coming to God by faith for the forgiveness of sins and demonstrating covenant loyalty. And they agreed. All the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And this was the procedure for ratifying God's covenant with Israel. The people accept the Lord's covenant terms. If they had not accepted, if they had said, let us think about it for a day, they could not be God's covenant people. And so they accepted the call to obey the word of God. Second, there must be covenant blood. Second half of verse 4. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and twelve pillars according to the twelve tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins and half of the blood he threw against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people. And said, behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. The Twelve pillars around the altar represent all the people. The young men represent all of the tribes of Israel. And now sacrifice is made. Blood is sprinkled on the altar showing Yahweh's participation in the covenant that he will recognize shed blood and blood is sprinkled on the people showing Israel's participation in the covenant that they will obey. Now this isn't specifically a sacrifice for sin but blood is still shed and this sacrifice is now ratifying the covenant. It's essentially a threat of death to any party who breaks covenant and part of Keeping covenant will be to continue sacrificing for sin, to maintain right relationships with holy God, to continue to receive those promised covenant blessings. And in the same way, when we receive the Lord's table, this is reminding us 
of the new covenant in Christ's blood, it's a reminder that under this covenant, we have agreed to obey. We have been sprinkled by the blood. We have agreed to follow Christ at all costs, to take up our cross and follow him. And third, we can expect a picture of covenant homecoming. Are they going to get a picture of their future? Verse 9, Then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu and the 70, 70 of the elders of Israel went up. And they saw the God of Israel. There under his feet, as it were, were a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief, of the peop- chief men of the people of Israel. Now, what is this a picture of? They've just been transported in some way to the throne room of God. And there's other things there not recorded here. We know from Paul's writing to the, to the Corinthians that in some manner, the angels of God were involved in the giving of the law of God. I think the best idea of involving the angels of God in the giving of the law of God is that at this moment, when these elders, these representatives of Israel get a, a glimpse into their future, a glimpse into the heavenly throne room, that who else did they see? Well, they saw the angels. Paul says this in the New Testament. And I think it's interesting to note that the interaction that God had with his people began in chapter 19 with thunder and lightning and smoke and fire. And it gives way to this glorious beauty which in some fashion these representatives of God's people have a view into heaven to behold God. They've been covered in the blood of the covenant. And by the way, the point is explicitly made in verse 11. He did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. The point is explicitly made that they are beholding the glory of God and they're alive. That they are not struck. And what did they do in the very presence of God? You guessed it. Covenant celebration. In verse 11, they beheld God and ate and drank. And just as the new covenant was made possible by a mediator, Jesus Christ is a model and foreshadowing of this. The old covenant was made possible by God's chosen mediator, Moses, who now meets with God on behalf of his people. And the rest of the chapter outlines Moses being called up to Mount Sinai. God's now going to give a longer list of specific instructions to Moses concerning worship, which we'll look at next week. And at the end of chapter 31, you don't have to turn there. And he gave to Moses, when he had finished speaking with him on Mount Sinai, the two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone written with the finger of God. And by the way, contrary to your coloring book pages, which had the first five commandments on one and the second five commandments on another, all ten commandments were on both stones. Because this is a covenant. This is a contract. And each party gets a copy. That's why there's two tablets. The concept of covenant is so important in Scripture. The covenants of God are the means by which he brings about his kingdom plan. And there's a phrase that God said to Noah, one which we also can rely upon, one which gives you hope, which gives me hope beyond the grave. This is the phrase that God said to Noah, I will remember my covenant. And we're counting on him to remember his covenant. And because God is a covenant-keeping God, by his grace, through the Spirit of God, he brought you to covenant agreement made possible by covenant blood, which guarantees your covenant homecoming, which will launch a covenant celebration.
Same pattern. God is always saved by grace through faith. We just have more information than they did. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you so much for your consistency. The same heaven that the elders of Israel and Moses and Aaron and Nadab and Abihu saw briefly in Exodus 24 is the same heaven that Ezekiel saw in Ezekiel 1, the same heaven that Daniel saw briefly in his vision, the same heaven that the Apostle John was given in Revelation 4 and 5. It is the same heaven that each one of us will enter. Lord, I praise you for opening our eyes to come into covenant agreement. We praise you for the blood of Christ, which has given us the covenant blood that we needed We thank you for our future covenant homecoming and we look forward to covenant celebration. And Lord, for each person here, I I pray that for the rest of their lives on this earth, that each time they receive the Lord's table, that they might remember that this is just a precursor of great things yet to come. We praise you and we thank you in Christ's name. Amen.